According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Philippians once again this evening. Philippians 1.1, we are looking at the overseers and the deacons, including overseers and deacons. We should take the out of there. We have a the in English. We don't have a the in Greek, so... Uh, it should be to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including overseers and deacons. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to set aside our distractions and to humble us under the authority of eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you tonight for the blessings we have, so many blessings all of them. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, and I thank you for that. I rejoice that this evening those heavenly blessings have come to earth, and we're here to receive them uh, under the authority of your word as it goes forth. We pray for diligence to study to show ourselves approved, and I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have the uh, microphone ready to go related to that. All righty. And we have a question prepared i believe you have a question ready to go are we okay we can run the microphone over here i'm not sure where our normal microphone guy is but uh your twin who prefers to not be mentioned on uh, the recording so i won't say his name Kevin? <laughs> all right testing all right so my question isn't a study question as much as something i was pondering that also came up tonight in the prayer group Uh um i know that uh god spoke audibly to jeremiah um and told him not to pray for um for the people that were there right wondering if there's anybody that we shouldn't pray for and under what conditions we wouldn't pray for for somebody um that we know or if there's any time it's applicable to not pray for someone? Mm -hmm. Um, That's a great question. And I'm going to answer in two ways. Uh, Yes and no. (laughs) Um, Jeremiah is not unique in that. Ezekiel also was told to quit praying. Uh, I think Daniel was told to quit praying. Isaiah was told to quit praying. And, And Moses was told, you know, stand back, don't pray for these people. I think it's a fairly common uh, test for an Old Testament prophet. Uh, most of them were, were disobedient. They, they prayed anyway, uh, even though they were told not to. Um, and, and I find that curious. Uh, in the New Testament, though, uh, we don't have anything comparable because we don't have verbal utterances or, or messages from the Lord, that kind of thing. But uh, we do have 1 John 4, uh, when there are believers undergoing the sin unto death. Uh, we're not to pray for that. And uh, in there's a debated text there or interpretation of that text as far as what it is we should not be. Are we not praying for them to enter into the sin of death? Do we stop praying for them once they are in the sin of death? Um, what's the application there? I'm talking about a passage in 1 John that, that addresses that. I, I think the, the fundamental thing, though, is to be praying according to His will. And, and I think a lot of times we pray contrary to His will 
when we disagree with the divine discipline that someone is presently under. So I don't want to be at odds with the will of God. If, if God's applying discipline to somebody, then I'm not praying for that to stop. I'm praying for that to achieve its objective. And so because if when, the, when our brother repents or when our sister repents or whatever, when the discipline does what it's designed to do, it'll stop because it's accomplished its purpose and they will have been won and, and rescued and, and restored to fellowship. And so then at that point we won't have to pray uh, for that, that difficulty to stop kind of a thing. So, um, so does that answer, I guess, the gist? I, I, I think, um, I don't know, I, I, I puzzle sometimes why people no longer come to my mind that used to. Um, and I think about somebody that was a part of this flock, they're not a part of this flock anymore, and I'm going, wow, they just have not crossed my mind in months or years even. You know, well, why is that? You know, it could be because we're so busy praying for the, the flock that's here, and my command is to shepherd the flock of God among you, not shepherd the flock of God that left you 10 years ago. But, I, and I, but part of me too thinks that that's part of the divine discipline, it's part of the consequences, I shouldn't say discipline, but when they do depart for right reasons or wrong reasons, they're under somebody else's shepherding uh, responsibility. And so part of changing flocks is, is changing that shepherding prayer ministry. So that, that may be more than what you asked for in, in that. Well, the reason I asked is because previous pastors in a different, uh, in a denominational setting mm-hmm. um, have asked us to not pray for somebody and I think it was because of the sins they were committing. Mm. And so that's why the conversation came up recently and I was pondering it. Right, right. But I never questioned that pastor because then I'd have to read my Bible. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Appreciate that. All right, other questions? Up, up here then, four rows in front of you. Someone else that prefers their name not to be mentioned on the uh, website, on the MP3 file. Or it doesn't matter to you at all? Okay, Carol Patriarcho has a question. <laughs> There you go. That's right. Yes, ma'am. So a neighbor came by and asked, uh, we were talking, they're believers, and asked if I was full of the Spirit. And I said, well, sure. I'm sealed by the Spirit. I'm full of the Trinity. I mean, I I had no clue. Uh And then they went on to talk about Acts 2. And so is that a charismatic thing? Yep. Okay. So it's, it's, you can't just have the Spirit because you have... The Trinity, you actually have it additionally? In the, yeah, in their view, it is a post-salvation event. It is a second blessing. It is something that comes uh, subsequent to being born again as you develop that, as you grow, as you achieve a spiritual status whereby you're worthy of that and you can attain to that kind of a thing. It's called the second blessing. And, uh, and it's very charismatic, uh, different Pentecostal groups and others that, that make use of that concept. Uh, I had a grandmother... Um, step grandmother, something I forget now. My, I think we were related. Anyway, it was a my grandfather's eighth wife, if that counts. But she um, she asked me. She said, "Have you uh, have you been baptized by the Holy Ghost?" You know, and so I just smiled and said, "Yes, ma'am." You know, and and I. I kind of knew what, where she was coming from and what she meant, but I answered it truthfully because in my doctrinal understanding. Um, I, that happened to me the moment I placed my faith in Christ. At the age of four, I got saved and I was baptized by the Holy Ghost. So um, depending on, on how comfortable you are with your neighbor or your friend or whoever you're talking to, um, 
you know, uh, you can get into whatever they want to get into, but it, I just prefer to fellowship over what we have in common and kind of let it go at that. They're teaching a Bible study and they're promoting this strongly and they're having problems with people who don't agree the same. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted more information. So they're inviting people to come in that have different views and they want a whole knockdown drag out or? No, not oh. not a. It's not aggressive. They just believe their way and they think uh-huh. they're right and they're they're praying for these people because they're te- being taught wrong. Oh, okay. Which of course is what those people are praying for on them. Right, right. In fact, I heard this just last week or two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Um, I had that verse thrown at me that we were guilty of uh, holding to a form of godliness while denying its power, and they were applying that verse to us by being cessationists and rejecting the charismatic giftedness and all the the signs and wonders and the gee whiz Christianity, that we don't accept that. So we are the group obviously being referred to there as holding to a form of godliness while we deny its power. And uh, I just thought, wow, that's sad, you know, in in the context there. um, All right, well, good luck with, uh, with that. All right. Back row then, back row. See, I know, I missed last week. That was it. Thank you for teaching last week. And we're now two weeks away from, uh, since our last question and answer time. So. Yes, sir. Uh, Genesis 28. Chapter 13. 20, verse 8, or chapter 28? Chapter 28, 12 and following. Okay. Talking about Jacob's ladder. Yeah. Um, there's prophecy in that, right? Is that prophetical? I don't see that as prophetic. I see that as current events. Um, so he had a dream. Behold, a ladder set on the earth, its top reaching to heaven. Behold, angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And uh, then Yahweh speaks to him there from the top of the ladder. And uh, he gives him a, a future I will promise. This is where the covenant is, is confirmed to Jacob. So it had been confirmed to Isaac and now reconfirmed to Jacob. And uh, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Although in this verse, he's just the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac because this is the verse that reconfirms the covenant to, uh, to Jacob. Okay. No, I don't view that as, as prophetic. Is there another passage where you think that gets unfolded? No, I'm just uh, wondering where the thousand generations, how they, are, how they begin um, of uh, you know, the, th- the Adamic-like... People. Oh, yeah, I don't think there's any connection here. With you don't this. think there's no, a connection all, with Jacob's ladder? This is all centered on on Jacob before he's renamed Israel and the, the uh, relationship of God to Israel and, and establishing himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay. Well, thanks for correcting me on that. Um, how does that begin? I mean, with, with what people? I mean, that, that are oh, okay. Adamic-like. Right. So uh, we go to Revelation chapter 20. Okay. And I'll put in verse 100, and my software will say, you dummy, there's not 100 verses in Revelation 20. But that's my shortcut for getting to the end of the chapter. Okay? Logos software will bail you out. If you have a verse that's too high, it just sends you to the, the biggest one it can get. Right? You can do the same thing with a chapter. You can go to Revelation chapter 55, and it will send you to the last chapter. And it, it's smarter than, than we are. Um, so anyway, you go to the end of Revelation chapter 20 here. And you see that this is the conclusion of the millennium. This is the great white throne that actually is convened. Court is in session after the heavens and earth are destroyed, right? Uh, Because uh, we're told um, this is where the devil is thrown into the lake of fire. And then comes the great white throne. 
and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And so if earth and heaven flee away, then where'd they go? <laughs> okay? And that's the idea, that they no longer exist at the time that the great white throne is, is being convened, that it's being convened in between the destruction of the present heavens and the earth and then the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And we're, of course, looking forward to, you might have heard, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So in between that is when the great white throne is convened and all the uh, unbelievers and fallen angels and all the uh, sin and evil, all that's thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And so this then is the beginning. It's the beginning of the new heavens and new earth. It's the beginning of the thousand generations. All right. And so you start the counting there. It's the beginning of the, new, of the thousand generations. And, and so generation zero, if you want to think of it as that, the generation that's going to procreate and produce generation one, right, is this group here, the living saints at the end of the millennium. Okay. The, the living saints that cross over from the millennium into the, into the new earth. So and, they are going to die. I'm sorry? The generation zero will eventually perish, right? No, I don't believe no. generation zero perishes. That's why I go back and forth in my thinking on this. Sometimes I call them generation zero, sometimes I call them generation one. I don't know how he's going to count the thousand. Um, uh, but there is no more death. In the new earth, there is no more death. Okay. And so when the old heaven and earth are, are destroyed, so too is their sin nature from okay. inside each one of them. Okay. And, and they are made clean as, you know, sinless as Adam and Eve. They're, they're restored to sinless Adamic humanity okay. at that point. Uh, and we're told here, he will wipe away every tear, verse 4, uh, from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So generation zero or one, however you want to number that, uh, are the living saints at the time, at, at the conclusion of the millennium, right? And this, this just comes to uh, an assumption. And I'm making an assumption. I admit, I'm making an assumption. But my assumption is no worse than everybody else's assumption uh, because everybody else is also making an assumption that at the end of the millennium, those living saints... And they just assume, well, they have to be raptured like we were raptured at the end of the church age. They have to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. They have to be glorified as we're resurrected and glorified at the rapture. And that's an assumption they're making, and this text does not support that assumption. So uh, I think it's much more natural that they cross over from the millennium into the fullness of time in their uh, mortal bodies, but made sinless and without death, if that makes any sense. Yes. Okay. Thank you. And, and that way, by not being glorified, then they are not angel-like. Uh, and by that, us in the resurrection are like the angels, neither marrying nor giving in marriage. Uh, in, in the resurrection, there is no procreation. That's why they can't be resurrected. They have to procreate for a thousand generations. Excellent question. All right, one row in front of you then. As it comes to the uh, the new heaven and the new earth and the old heaven and the old earth pass away, is that something that happens instantaneously, meaning, boom, the old heaven and the old earth is gone and there's a new heaven and a new earth? Is it something that takes time? Do they both kind of coexist at the same time while one's being prepared? Or I kind of think of them as, as two separate moments that in between those moments, and who knows what the structure of time is going to be like then anyway, uh, but the destruction 
is quite clearly before the, the great white throne. The great white throne is convened, and how long does that take? And does time really matter while every unbeliever in the history of humanity and angelity is being judged? And then uh, once they're thrown in the lake of fire, and once death and Hades are thrown in the lake of fire, and that dimension is sealed off, then it says in, in verse 1 here, I make all things new. Uh, I saw new heavens and new earth. So, you know, I, I think it's two stages, two, two separate moments with the great white throne in between. And however long that takes, I couldn't tell you. How long is the judgment seat of Christ going to take as our work gets judged? Our, our wood, hand, stubble, our gold, silver, and precious stones? You know, it's hard to imagine because, you know, I know I've piled up so much wood, hand, stubble. That's, that could take some time. Um, it's like the alarm panels out here. Have you ever done that? On the, on the alarm panels it says hit star for faults. You ever done that? My faults take hours just to list one by one by one. So I don't push that button. All right. Well then, we will save additional questions for next week. Thank you for running the microphone. Let's go to Philippians chapter 1. All right, Philippians chapter 1. And I'll start my slideshow here. We're talking about overseers and deacons. Overseers and deacons. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Of course, the body of Christ, we call that the church universal. We usually use a capital letter C to emphasize church as the body of Christ. Um, a subset of that is a local church. And that's what we're looking at here. And so really, um, this is point three in the outline. For some reason, this has not been working lately, so let me, I'm not sure why it does that. There we go. A local church is a subset of the universal church, which is fixed to a particular locality and is administered through the offices of overseer and deacon. So this is how you know that uh, you're, you're talking about a local church. And it's throughout the New Testament. It's to the church which is at, at Corinth, at Ephesus, at Rome, at Philippi, at Thessalonica, what have you. It is a, it is a, a body of believers, that's an ecclesia, at a specific location. It's not to the church universal. It is to a particular flock. And that's what we see here. To the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. So every saint is in Christ Jesus in the church age, but only those saints in Philippi that identify with that lampstand are being addressed in this, uh, in this epistle, including overseers and deacons. And we see the structure here that's being provided for uh, what ultimately comes into uh, force in the post-apostolic age, that we have structure that's designed to last beyond the transition stage of the church. And so uh, we have uh, the Pauline epistles, we have the pastoral epistles that give us more information. Ultimately, we have Revelation 2 and 3. We have the final word on church polity that's given in, uh, in, when, when the Apostle John is, is the last living apostle on this earth. He gives a message to seven lampstands 
where Jesus Christ walks in the midst of every one of those lampstands and he holds the stars in his right hand. And you will note it's seven and seven. Seven lampstands, seven stars held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. One per church. And so we have to adjust a little bit of what we're talking about here tonight. We've got to recognize when we're talking about overseers and deacons, that is a plurality of overseers. And we have other passages that speak of a plurality of elders. And I hope that every flock has a plurality of elders. I hope because elder is a maturity status. We want every believer to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We would love every believer to grow to that maturity status as, as mature men and mature women in Christ. Um, but you have a plurality of elders, you have a plurality of overseers. Nevertheless, one of those elder overseers is the star. Okay, not the movie star, the star. That is the heavenly messenger, the angelos, the uh, one that is accountable for delivering the heavenly message to his earthly context. And so that's the one, that's why we have what is sometimes thought of as a hybrid. Okay, uh, that's how we're structured here at Austin Bible Church. And there's, there's a big tension right now. Uh, I think about 1990 or thereabouts. 92 maybe, late 80s. Anyway, at some point there was uh, a, a book written uh, by Alexander Strock called Principles of Biblical Eldership. And boy, it swept through Dallas churches, evangelical churches, doctrinal churches. And the, the previous model, the BRCA model or the, the one pastor deacon board kind of model, that started to come under criticism and started to get adjusted. And I'd say, oh, I don't know, a fourth to a third of, of Bible churches uh, started to adopt that plurality of elders model. And uh, Grace Covenant follows it, Hill Country follows it, a lot of these modern Dallas churches will, will pursue that model. The flaw in that model though is that, that they don't have uh, a point of accountability. That they have just this general uh, consensus building body of elders that they, they uh, strive to find consensus and unanimity and like-mindedness and blah blah blah. Even uh, MacArthur will tell you uh, at Master Seminary or at, at uh, his church there that he's not, he's not in charge. He's one out of 20 elders at, uh, at that church, right? And I've been told this, I haven't been there, but I've been told this, that when you walk in there, all the elders have their portraits up on the wall. And MacArthur is no, doesn't come first, he's not higher, he's not in press, he's, they, in fact they alphabetize them all so he's in the middle of the pack with uh, the elders and the portraits that come on the wall there, okay? It's a story I've been told. Like I say, I haven't been there. But I understand it because, see, that is the model, that is the model that Alexander Strzok uh, put forth in Principles of Biblical Eldership. And so since then, for the last 20 years now, we've had this kind of tension back and forth with churches that have stuck to the one pastor, deacon boards, no other elders kind of thing or the plurality of elders kind of thing, and it's kind of formed a, an either-or kind of a, a thing, right? Like uh, just a this-way-or-that-way kind of fight, you know? It's almost like hymns versus praise music kind of fight, you know? Uh, churches find stuff to fight about. Um, so ours, by the way, I think it's beautiful. I think it's, a, it, it's been called a hybrid uh, between the two different models because we do have a plurality of elders, we have a plurality of overseers, but we still maintain a single point of accountability, a single point of responsibility. And, and that is the right-hand messenger, the star held in the right hand of Jesus Christ as He walks in the midst of this lampstand. And so 
Uh, we won't get into it tonight, but you can just read through those messages in Revelation 2 and 3. And, and let me tell you, for five out of those seven churches, there were problems and there were things being addressed. And Jesus Christ shows up and says, fix this, okay? And, and notice he doesn't come to a committee and he doesn't come to a, a presbytery or a group of elders. He goes to one angelos and he says, you fix this or, I, or you're fired, right? Or I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. And that's the, uh, the exhortation there. So um, we'll have to address that as we kind of expand upon this. We have a plurality of overseers, a plurality of elders, while we still recognize a singularity of the right-hand messenger, that is, the, uh, the accountable one for the flock. Uh, does that make sense? Any questions on that? All right. And so we have it here in Philippians 1.1, we have including overseers and deacons. And we see that that is the structure in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in a, an entire chapter that's given over to how we operate in the lampstand. How do we operate in the church of God, which is the, uh, the pillar and support of the truth. And so 1 Timothy chapter 3 spells it out. After you have the 13 verses that delineate all this, there's the purpose of the book in 3.14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. And so this is universal. It applies to any individual flock, and it's a part of the entire body of Christ. And what do you have? Verses 1 through 7 is the overseer, and verses 8 through 13 are the deacons. The very same vocabulary, the very same terminology, the very same offices, the same concept that we're dealing with in Philippians 1.1, the overseers and the deacons. Okay, Significant that the overseer is consistently singular in 1 through 7. Every noun is singular, every adjective is singular. An overseer then must be, not the overseers all must be, but an overseer must be. And that's significant. All right. Every lampstand may have a plurality, but they don't have to have a plurality. They may just have a singularity. It may be that as they get started, the, the shepherd of that flock is the one and only overseer they've got. The one and only uh, uh, that, that's qualified, that's in that office, that's in that position. See, until such time as they are added, uh, that's what you deal with. But in verse 8 and following, it's all plural. Deacons, likewise, must be. And then every adjective, men of dignity, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not fond of sordid gain, every one of those expressions is all plural as it relates to the deacons, plural. All right, so we have these offices here. Now under this, uh, we talked about saints on Sunday, the vocabulary of hagios and hagiadzo. Uh, every born-again believer in any dispensation is a saint. We are all saints. The best part of... of uh, the, uh, the body of Christ is that we are all set apart for His purpose, for His glory. And being set apart, this happens the moment we're saved. We are set apart. We are, we are sanctified. Uh, we have a positional sanctification that we get at the moment of our salvation. We have the ongoing experiential sanctification that we work out day by day for the totality of our Christian walk. And then we will have an ultimate sanctification when that day comes that He calls us home. And then we are ultimately sanctified. We are so set apart, we're with Him and uh, no longer uh, walking in our mortality in this, in this lost and dying world. And so sanctification is a great study. 
a lot of confusion out there. Um, we want to make sure that we're solid on it. And one of the best things you can do to get solid on sanctification is learn that we are all saints in Christ Jesus. We are saints by calling. And there's nothing we've done to earn it or deserve it. And I think the, the, the best, you know, another good thing we can do, I keep saying the best thing, another good thing we can do is try to separate out the, the bad definitions that are there. And so many people equate sanctified or holy with devout, right? Somebody that's really devout in their faith, or they're really dedicated to their church, or they're really fervent in their, you know, their service to the Lord. And you go, wow, that brother, he really, you know, loves Jesus. Or that sister is just so devout, so fervent. She's so on fire for Jesus or whatever. And, and they use that concept as a parallel or an equivalent to holy. They go, oh, you're so holy. And that's a, that's a mislabeling. That's a, a misidentifying of what holiness is, what sanctification is. And I think Satan loves to foster that bad uh, approach because <laughs> it can get people distracted. And uh, you feel, wow, if I'm not as fervent as I was last week, then I'm less holy. And what's wrong with me? Okay? And uh, I think it leads to some other abuses. So every born-again believer in any dispensation is a saint. All right. But moving on to the overseers and the deacons. Overseers and deacons, these are the offices every local church is vested with. And these are the only offices. Some would argue for a, a widow office on the basis of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Um, that's not referred to as an office so much as it's referred to as a list. All right. Uh, the older widows are to be put on the list. And uh, a list it does not imply an office, although some people try to make it out to be. Um, it is a list for support. It is a list for care. And in particular, if they are widows indeed, that is, unless they have dependent children, if they have uh, daughters and granddaughters or children that can meet their needs, then that has to happen first. If they don't have children and grandchildren, then they get put on the list. And that is not an office. That is a a list for us to serve them as a flock, meeting the needs of, of the uh, elderly in our congregation. So uh, if you encounter that in your reading or somebody that tries to make an office out of the widow, um, it's, it's just, I've seen it, but it's just a bad approach on that. Philippians 1.1 says overseers and deacons. 1 Timothy 3 says overseers and deacons. And uh, Titus 1, overseers. Okay, That's uh, what we're dealing with. So these are the offices every local church is vested with. If you're not a local church, you don't need them. If you're just a home Bible study, that's great. If you're an informal fellowship, hey, more power to you. There's, there's nothing that stops you from doing that. We've got liberty in Christ to do all kinds of things. And maybe you've got a steady group at work, or you've got a steady group with your Pentecostal neighbors, or you've got, you got something else, right? Hey, marvelous. Now they're not substitutes for the local church. But above and beyond for whatever else you're doing, that's great. But if you're plant, if if Lord is planting a lampstand, then very quickly you need to identify that and put into place the structure He designed, and that's overseers and deacons. All right, now we were running out of time on Sunday as we were defining these things. I want to make sure we're clear on it. An office is not a spiritual gift. We studied charismatology. We outlined for you 20 spiritual gifts, including nine that were temporary, 11 that are permanent. Not one of those gifts is the gift of overseer. Okay? It's not there. 
Um, it's an office, it's not a gift. We want to be clear on that. Pastor-teacher is a spiritual gift, but the office is overseer. It's an office that speaks to its function because the overseer oversees. <laughs> All right? And any spiritual gift, ultimately, I, I've known of overseers that were, of course, most of them are pastor-teachers, uh, but may, I've known overseers that are evangelists. I've known overseers that have other spiritual gifts, uh, that have the gift of leadership or have the gift of of administration or have the gift of, of, of whatever. Gift of giving conceivably could be the overseer of a local assembly. Any gift could be the overseer of a local assembly. Likewise, an office is not a maturity status. Now the term overseer and elder, they're going to be used interrelatedly. And I say that very carefully. They're not used interchangeably because not every elder is an overseer. And not every overseer is necessarily an elder. They just can't be a neophyte. All right? They can't be a babe in Christ. But they aren't necessarily uh, of a maturity status of elder. They want to be maturing. They want to be approaching that. And if they're not an elder, their flock needs to see them become an elder as he grows. That's the thing with 1 Timothy. Let no one despise thy youth. Uh, See to it that no one looks down on your youthfulness, but rather set the example. And your progress will be evident to all. That flock was going to see Timothy arrive at the elder overseer uh, maturity status. All right, so overseer is an office. It's not a maturity status. It's not a maturity status. And so we have elder, which is a maturity status. And there are older men and there are older women. Older men are to encourage the younger men. Older women are to encourage the younger women. In fact, to teach the younger women how to love their husbands. All right? And... uh, but an, an elder woman is never placed in the office of overseer. We want to be clear on that. The overseer is always a masculine singular noun. And in fact, I can prove it, I'm going to prove it to you tonight exegetically. There is a, ma- there is a feminine singular noun, but it's not used for a female overseer. Okay? I teased you with that, didn't I, on Sunday morning? I said, I want you to think about that between now and Wednesday. So that was my tease, my cliffhanger, and we're about to pull you off the cliff. All right. Um, so elder is a maturity status, but the office is overseer. So right there on the board, you got pastor, teacher, elder, overseer. And I did a study one time, I taught it several times, on the elder, overseer, pastor, teacher. It's kind of a, a Trinitarian topic because it encompasses all of this. It encompasses spiritual gifts, offices, and maturity statuses. All right. So we're clear on that. Are we clear on that? Every believer should grow. I don't care what your gift is. All 11 gifts, whatever your gift, you got one of those 11 gifts, you're still expected to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You should be a mature man, a mature woman. We're all designed to get there. And uh, along the way you may serve in the office of deacon, you may serve in the office of overseer, or both. And there it is. All right. Also, point three, gifts, maturity statuses, stati, no, statuses, okay, gifts, maturity statuses, and offices are frequently blurred by people that don't know any better and people who do know better but they're not careful, okay? I've done it, we've all done it. Gifts, maturity statuses, and offices are frequently blurred but they must be brought into clear focus 
for appropriate applications. And that's what we're attempting to do tonight. And it may be that there are studies where the, the, the distinctions don't matter, but there may be studies where it, the distinctions do matter. They matter quite a bit. And in fact, I think they matter quite a bit by the time you get to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're told the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. That's a text that demands distinctions. Because we have elders that rule and elders that don't rule. And among the elders who rule, that is they're in the office of overseer, we have those who rule well and those who rule but maybe not so well. Okay, Because they don't work hard at preaching and teaching. And that's where you prioritize the financial support, that they're worthy of the double honor. Okay. Did you hear that in Houston, by the way? Or maybe not. It might not have been on the recording. Did you watch the streaming conference? Oh, Robbie Dean had a great commentary on the... <laughs> he put out... I think he was joking. I think he was messing with his deacons. But he pointed out, he said that the, the double honor principle from 1 Timothy chapter 5 means whoever the richest person is in the church, the pastor should get twice as much. <laughs> like I, I'm pretty sure he was joking. Anyway. So... There are passages where we're going to use them interchangeably or interrelatedly, and I'll show those to you tonight. But then there are other passages where you cannot interchange them. You have to keep the concepts distinct. And so we want to bring them into clear focus for appropriate applications. Now, the um, offices of overseer and deacon, I believe, if they're not gifts, what are they? I believe that they are ministry fields. Remember, gifts, ministries, and effects from first, join me at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6. We've taught this a bunch of times too. This is easy to look at, easy to point your finger on. Let's see, look at that. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. A finger on each one. And when we talk about the office of overseer or the office of deacon, either one, we're talking about a specific ministry field. It's not a gift, but it, it is a ministry. And we should view it as a ministry. So there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. Remember this? And a variety, varieties of effects, but the same God, I take that as the Father, who works all things and all persons. Because it's the Father who's at work in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So we have the Spirit, we have the Lord, we have the Father. We have a trinity here at work with our gifts, with our ministries, and with our effects. God the Holy Spirit gave you your gift the moment He sealed you in Christ. He continues to empower your gift every time you exercise it. Your gift is a spirit thing. It's a grace thing and it's a spirit thing. It is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. Every time you exercise your gift, it is the Holy Spirit's empowerment that is being manifested in this world. Ministry is a Lord thing, okay? Varieties of ministries and the same Lord. Now, why is that? Well, because Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Who, who else would lead, would lead our ministries but Jesus? The Father's not going to do it. The, the Holy Spirit's not going to do it, right? Jesus is the head of the church. He is the one that provides the leadership in our ministry pursuits. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is the one that opens doors no man can shut, and he shuts doors that no man can open. And the whole concept of open door, closed door is the, is the 
is the uh, principle that underlies ministry. Gifts never close. Gifts never expire. You can't throw away your gift. You can't stop being the gift that you are. But you can throw away a ministry. You can be disqualified from a ministry. You can discredit a ministry. And uh, and every pastor you ever know that got flushed out of the ministry is still a pastor by gift. He's just no longer suited for that ministry until a time of repentance and restoration and, and grace can restore such a thing. So varieties of ministries. And this is where we put the office of overseer, the office of deacon. These are particular ministries that if you are entrusted with an office, well then that is going to be a ministry field for you for the duration of the time that you serve in that office. So it is an office of responsibility for organization and structure in a local church. It's also, of course, a ministry of service to that church. Does that make sense? Any questions on that? All right. And then there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. So a gifted believer who's pursuing a ministry, these are the ones in and through which the God the Father is going to produce the maximum effects. Man, and then it's, you know, it's wide open. The ministry field is way open in front of you. That's a wide open door for effective ministry. And the Father will work in those, in those believers more than, say, other believers. All right, so the offices of overseer and deacon, they are specific ministry fields for a variety of gifted believers to achieve a variety of the Father's effects. You might have noticed that um, not every deacon looks alike. <laughs> not every deacon deacons alike, all right? And some deacons are uh, like a treasurer capacity and other deacons are uh, a property capacity and other deacons are a Sunday school capacity. Other deacons are, you know, nursery. And I mean, there's a variety uh, of effects that are achieved within that particular ministry field. They're all deacons, right? Or deaconesses. But there are a variety of effects that are achieved by the Father in and through those gifted believers. And also, what spiritual gift do those deacons have? I've got deacons that are evangelists. I've got deacons, I've had deacons that were pastor teachers by gift, preparing to enter. Dan, you know, uh, Cliff, B3, LaRosa, you know, uh, Ralph did the same thing with me. Ralph made me a deacon. And I served as a deacon. I love that. So, in any event, it's a specific ministry field for a variety of gifted believers. You've got believers with a gift of giving, believers with a gift of helps, believers with a gift of leadership, the gift of administration. You have an assortment of gifts, and any of them can be a deacon. So uh, it's specific ministry fields for a variety of gifted believers to achieve a variety of the Father's effects. And those doors will open, and those doors will close. All right, because there are qualifications and disqualifications for these offices. And uh, if we disqualify ourselves, then those doors get closed. Also, we may get promoted in the sense that a deacon may uh, be transferred out. I, I took Glenn Carnegie out of the deacon office and put him in the overseer office, all right? Because he was such a help to me in teaching Hebrew and teaching Greek and, and uh, uh, helping with the, the men under training that uh, said, you know, we got a we got a plurality of elders now in our new constitution, let's use it. <laughs> and let's, uh, I would have loved to have done this for Hugh Hatley 30, you know, 25 years ago. I would have loved to have done this for Warren Dowd 20 years ago. See. 
in any event. So uh, when you're looking at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4, 5, and 6, it, it's helpful to think gifts, ministries, and effects, right? That's kind of a little triad, a little trinity there. Uh, gifts, ministries, and effects. It's useful, but also don't confuse it with gifts, offices, and maturity statuses, right? And because that's a different kind of triad. That's a different kind of trinity. And, uh, and they're not... They're not swappable, okay? So gifts, ministries, and effects is what you have here in 1 Corinthians 12. But gifts, maturity statuses, and offices you have as a theological construction that spans the entire New Testament. You're not going to find it in a single passage like you have here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so we see that. All right, let's start with the office, the office of overseer. And this is where we get our feminine noun. The office of overseer, and write this down, or take a picture. I always get tempted to, every time he holds his camera up to, I always want to smile. All right. The office of overseer is the episcopé of the episcopos. Okay? If that doesn't mean anything to you right now, don't sweat it, but uh, we're (laughs) we're not turning into Episcopalians tonight. But that's where Episcopalian comes from. That mode of governance comes from this vocabulary. It comes from the idea of a bishop. You say, where does bishop come from? The same thing as episkopos, okay? Bis meaning over and scope meaning look, okay? So you're looking over something. Either a bishop is a looker over or an episkopos is a, is a looker over, an overseer, Okay? Um, and that's what we have here. So the Strong's number, uh, Episcope, E-P-I, Epi, and then Scope, S-K-O-P-E, Episcope. That's number 1984, the Strong's number. It's only used four times. And then there's the Episcopos, the masculine noun. It's used five times. Episcope, by the way, is feminine. Did I tell you that? Episcopos is masculine. which is used five times. So let's look at these. Let's uh, look at Acts chapter 1. And we'll see it here. Acts chapter 1. Not Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter... Yes, I'm sorry. Acts chapter 1. And verse 20. It's a quotation from the Septuagint. It's a quotation from Psalm 109. The stupid joke that everyone was talking about when they were praying for President Obama. You know, let another man take his office. Okay? Ha, 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 ha. Okay. But here's the real application. Uh, This is with respect to Judas Iscariot, who was an apostle. As an unbeliever, he was an apostle. How's that for scary? And uh, who was given authority to cast out demons. You think he could have cast Satan out of himself. All right. Not sure how that works. Um, but Peter stands up and he's preaching and he says, we have to replace Judas. We cannot begin the church with only 11. We have to have 12. And this is vital. This is before Acts 2. This is before Pentecost. Okay, They have to have 12 apostles of the Lamb to be written on the 12 foundation stones of the new Jerusalem to sit on 12 thrones and to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. We need to have, in the will of God, 12 apostles of the Lamb. And it's not going to be Paul. 
Okay, He's not the 12th apostle. A lot of Paul worshipers out there that try to make him the 12th apostle. And they tell you this whole Matthias thing was out of the will of God. Not what the scripture says. All right. So um, anyway, this is where Matthias is going to be selected. There, there could have also been a fellow named Joseph. Uh, but Matthias is the one selected. And they do this prayerfully. Uh, get down to the end of the chapter. It says in verse 24, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry. Notice it's a ministry. And apostleship, notice it's an apostleship, it's not a pastorate. Um, this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Wow. What was Judas's place? Okay. And so they drew lots for them and the lot fell to Matthias and he was added to the eleven apostles. That's key. He was added to the eleven. And they're called the twelve after that. They're called the Twelve in chapter 2. They're called the Twelve in, in later chapters. They're, they're consistently referred to as the Twelve. And even when they're dropped to eleven again, because John gets, uh, not John, John's brother James gets put to death, right? And he gets put to death. There's not another Matthias procedure. They don't look up Joseph to say, hey, you're still available. They, uh, they don't have to replace uh, James, Okay? It's only to start the church that they need to have those 12 apostles of the Lamb. That's huge. So, Peter, so Paul and Barnabas, the brothers of Jesus, the other, the other church age apostles that were not apostles of the Lamb, the other church age apostles are numbered far beyond 12. Okay? As far as that goes. Anyway, backing up to verse 20, in this prophecy from Psalm 109, it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his episcopate. Let another man take his episcopate. That's his office, okay? Let another man take his office of overseeing responsibility. That's what an episcopate is. It is the office of an overseer. It is the office of an episcopos. And specifically... Um, and, and the gift is irrelevant because the, the actual ministry is apostleship in Judas's case, right? Peter, James, John, Andrew, uh, Bartholomew. I mean, I can't name the 12 tonight, but you know, we know the 12 apostles, right? Matthew, Levi, um, they have a ministry and an apostleship. We already saw that in verse 25, but it's connected to an office. The vocabulary of episcopate speaks to an office, and it is the office of the episcopos. Again, 1 Timothy 3 in verse 1. This is maybe where it's most clear. 1 Timothy 3, 1. It is interesting to me, though, how um, the, the local churches were assigned this office of overseer as well as the office of deacon, okay? And uh, this, the apostles were in the apostolic office, but this is, uh, this is the uh, local church office of overseer. All right. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the episcopate. One word, episcopate, comes across in New English as office of overseer, okay? But in Greek, it's if any man aspires to the episcopate, it is a fine work that he desires to do. Then verse 2, an episcopos then must be, and so there's the masculine noun. The masculine noun is the episcopos in verse 2, 
the masculine singular overseer must be uh, in order to be suited for the feminine singular noun of episcope. So the office is the episcope of the episcopos. Other uses. Philippians, uh, of course, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, overseers and deacons. Back to the book of Acts, Acts 20.28. 20, and this one, take a look at this one, Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. You'll note, there's the warning here, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. If you're not on guard for yourselves, how will you be on guard for the flock? And this is assuming a plurality too, by the way. And uh, so look out amongst yourselves and then also look out for the flock. Be on guard for yourselves and and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd, that's our pastor vocabulary, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And so right here, and then it goes on, it says, from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And this is the warning then that Paul follows up with in 1 Timothy when he tells you, I told you to stay on at Ephesus and instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So 1 Timothy is a follow-up to this message here. All right, so here's the plurality and here's the overseers. And you'll notice the main function of the overseers, what are they looking for? They're looking for wolves. They're looking for wild beasts. They're looking for problems that the sheep are going to have. They have to tend the sheep. They have to feed the flock. All right. That takes me to some other concepts too, by the way, because you'll notice the, uh, the, the, the body that the overseer uh, cares for is consistently called a flock. That's why the shepherding role comes to the forefront. That's why the pastor-teacher gift is the one that's best suited, that most frequently is vested in that office of overseer. Not the only one to be vested in the office, but it's the most frequent, usually it's the first, it's the primary gift that gets vested in that office of overseer because those overseers are expected to shepherd. These overseers are commanded to shepherd the flock of God. And so uh, who better to shepherd than those that are gifted to do so? See. Also, pay attention, if you back up to verse 17, it's the same context. These are the elders of the church. When you see in verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And so he's addressing the elders. And those elders, those elders are the ones that he calls overseers in verse 28, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And so they are interrelated. They're not strictly interchangeable, but they are interrelated. And we see that here. We also see it in Titus, Titus chapter 1. This may be more obvious in Titus because, you know, seriously, from 17 to 28, that's, that's 11 verses. Who, who pays attention to that kind of context? But in Titus chapter 1, it's verse 5 and verse 7. That's only two away. That's a whole lot closer. Titus 1.5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete, so that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. 
See that? That's our elder terminology. That's the maturity status of elder, the presbyteros. And then, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Does that sound familiar? That's like 1 Timothy 3 all over again, right? And then it says, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. All right. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. In 1 Timothy it says able to teach. Here it's spelled out in greater detail. Anyway, verse 5, elder, verse 7, overseer. And we see the interconnectedness of those terms. Note, no spiritual gift is stipulated. Nowhere in Titus, nowhere in 1 Timothy, nowhere in Philippians, nowhere in Acts, nowhere anywhere are we told that the office of overseer, the overseer must be, we've got a long list of things the overseer must be, and nowhere in there does it say what spiritual gift he must have. I think it's provable. When it says able to teach, that, that kind of nails it right there that he may not be a pastor teacher by gift. Because of course a pastor teacher is able to teach. That's what he's gifted to do. So when you have that expression able to teach, you have the expression here in, in Titus, um, he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. There is no spiritual gift stipulated. Likewise, the maturity status of elder is not mandated. The only prohibition comes there in 1 Timothy 3.6. It says not a new convert, not a neophyte. Somebody that was just saved this morning, okay, or somebody that was saved last week or somebody that was saved last month is not going to be vested in the office of overseer today. He has to grow beyond that neophyte status. The problem is if he's too young in the faith and he's vulnerable to pride and pride will go right to his head the responsibilities of of an overseer are going to go right to his head he's going to get full of himself and that's the condemnation of Satan right there. So no spiritual gift is stipulated and the maturity status of elder is not mandated. Now the office of deacon we'll come back to this on Sunday it is the diaconia of the diakonos. It is the diaconia of the diaconos. And so we have a ministry service of the ministry servers. And we'll talk about that. Note this office does allow women. And even a new convert could potentially serve once they are tested for approval. It's the vocabulary is slightly different. It's not the neophyte language for the overseer. It's slightly different. Uh, he might be a neophyte, but if he's tested, he may serve. And that's 1 Timothy 3.10. We'll have to come back to this Sunday morning. Lord willing and rapture pending because I only have uh, three seconds. Oh, there they go. All right, we are, uh, we are done. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for this evening. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for our deacons and deaconesses as we have them here. Thank you for our overseers as we have them here and our elders as we have them here. And Father, in all things, we just rejoice that, uh, that this flock is dedicated to being as conformed as possible to your truth 
And if we learn that something is out of adjustment, we make that adjustment, Father. We, uh, we'll, we'll change everything tomorrow if, if you convict us through your word that this is more accurate. But here we are in our conscience before you and our understanding of your text that we are operating in the manner that you have prescribed. And I thank you for this, uh, this great blessing. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.